Welcome to Opposable Thumbs, a podcast where Taylor and Rob chat with creative people of all kinds about their accomplishments, failures, and lessons learned. Michelle Chandra is our guest this episode. Greetings, Michelle. Hello. My name is Rob Ray. I use he, his gender pronouns. I'm a user interface designer, and I make art and music using the name Shimmering Trash Pile. And I'm Taylor Hokinson. I'm a artist, educator, DIY enthusiast, CAD cam evangelist, noted tall person, Midwestern Viking, and I'm a he, his kind of guy. And I'm Michelle Chandra. I'm an artist who codes, and I use she, her pronouns. See, ha, we were just talking, our just our last guest, we were talking all about why she did not prefer the term artist, and you had it front and center. So it's, it's great to see that contrast. Well, I feel like it's important, actually. I think in my 20s, I finally started being like, yeah, I'm an artist. And recently, a company reached out to me because they really love my work, and they wanted me to design them a logo. And I was like, you know what? I'm not a graphic designer. I am an artist. <laughs> there is a huge difference. I don't work with clients. I don't make things for other people. Even I make things for myself. So I feel, and I also don't really consider myself um, a programmer either, because if you asked me to write software, it would take a very long time. It would be a huge waste of your money. <laughs> I'm still very much feel like I'm an artist in the end. That's great. Roles and titles is something we've been focusing on a lot lately. Yeah, Rob and I, a lot of the questions we ask deal with our um, anxiety around our um, our marching uh, decrepitude. Rob, do you think that's fair? Yes. <laughs> My daughter was really fascinated about how much older you were than me, Rob, and she kept asking if you were dead tonight as I was putting her to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> um, only on the inside. I promise she does that to everybody. She's pretty obsessed with the topic right now. Yeah, I was going to say actually that I feel like the decrepitude accelerated really fast in my 30s, which is where I am now. And I look back longingly on my 20s like, ah, I had no idea how good I had. <laughs> could just eat whatever I wanted with boundless energy. <laughs> That's right. Well, wait till you look back on this decade. That's the one that'll bake your noodle. Yeah, I imagine. And when I'm in my 40s, it's going to be like, 30s were great. <laughs> I had some rough 30s when I was going through the tenure track process. But at the beginning of the 30s, I really liked feeling like, okay, I knew like a base level of stuff, but my body worked pretty well. And I had a lot of energy. They should have been great, but I, I really should have saved tenure for a less happy time in my life. <laughs> but who am I to complain? I mean, I know a lot of people have trouble hitting that ring. What do you think, Rob? Yeah, it's tough. You're also a really fit dude. I mean, you exercise a lot, right? Yeah, I do try to exercise a lot. I'm not always so successful about this, but there are things that I feel better about myself today than I did at any other moment in my life, you know? And so I'm just like, okay, I can hold on to that. Whatever it is, I don't know. I'm a better duster than I was before. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, here it is. Here yep. it comes. Yeah. Dusting is, a, <laughs> is my repeat topic. Did, did you all see Saturday Night Live every once in a while in desperation? I watch it in the hopes that it will kind of come back. And the whole thing was pretty much a dud this week, but they had an advertisement about what counts for turning people on in their 40s. And it was an ad for Zillow. <laughs> and so instead of doing like sexy stuff, you hung out with your partner and you think about the houses that you could buy in really cheap parts of the country as a, as a turn on, which I thought was pretty on the nose. Yeah. Well, I think that probably starts in the late 30s, though. Or for some people, it probably starts in the 20s. I feel like house buying for some people is probably a different time frame. It starts those dreams. 
<laughs> it's kind of pornographic, yeah, in that way. But as you can tell tonight, I have a strange attitude about talking, and I could I could make you guys talk all night. So, Rob, I, I think you should ask some questions before I just march us off into a strange direction. We have Michelle here, so perhaps we should ask Michelle about their work. Sounds good to me. <laughs> Jeez, where to start? Michelle, I'm intrigued by the language that you use on your website, dirtalleydesign.com, and it was really fun to read how you talk about your work using just cool phrases like generative art and like waveform modulation, pattern, etc. And I feel like you are probably best equipped to share with people what you do and how you think about it. So I was curious if you could just spend a little bit of time talking about what you find fun about generative art. It's such a big field. I think my interest is largely in pattern and especially taking inspiration from the natural world. And I love repetition. And so the things that I love to do programmatically are to create repetitive patterns. And I think it sort of stems back to in my 20s, I would make art and this was before like Instagram and so I was usually just laboring alone, painting, and a lot of what I liked doing was collage and like cutting up paintings and putting them back together and was very color focused and abstract. But it was also just the beautiful patterns I would find or beautiful color combinations. And so when I think the cool thing about making art with code is that because I started first thinking in paint and more like a fine artist with collage and graphic design... When I go to create a program, I'm still kind of applying my thinking as a fine artist to code, and I think that's kind of where my approach ends up being different. I think a lot of people who are programmers first and then code code art have like similar interests to other coders who do this, and so they'll always be interested in the code and the program, and so it'll be things like really cool particle systems and flow fields that are very complex and very cool. But I'm not really a coder first. I consider myself more just hacking away and, and like Googling to figure out what I want and kind of piecing it together. I'm more a graphic designer and an artist first. So my approach is I have this kind of idea and then I'm like creatively figuring it out more like an artist. So I'm not like, oh, I want to make a really awesome flow field, huge particle system. Um, instead, I'm like, oh, I really like this natural pattern. How can I create a cool pattern? So I think that's kind of where I differentiate. I see myself more as an artist whose medium at the moment is code. Nice. Wow. The Axie Draw, which which plays a large role in a lot of the work that you've got on your website currently, I'm familiar with him, but I, I would imagine a lot of people listening aren't necessarily. Would you mind describing how that device works? Yeah. So it is like a drawing machine. It has an arm with a pen and that goes over a piece of paper. You send a drawing and it will trace it out. I think this is where the fine artist in me comes out more than the programmer because I make work that could just be a digital image. But as someone who's more fine artist, I love the process of making with pens on paper the design the interplay of color. Uh, a lot of times the design on my computer is going to be black and white, and then I'm making it really come more to life with the plotter because of the pen choices and the pen widths and the pen colors and the way they'll overlap and create new colors. So I see that as another way that my interests kind of still lean always towards more of this artistic output. And I remember in grad school, somebody made conversations with my 
programming advisor were always just kind of like, but how can I make this something in the real world that's physical <laughs> and not just living on my computer screen? And I, I think I was just waiting for someone to like show me a pen plotter and I'd be like, oh, there we go. <laughs> nice. Yeah. That's cool. I have a really distinct memory of being in grad school and there was a sort of curmudgeonly guy that was on the staff and I saw he came out of a sub door in the shop and back in there, there was a little fish tank with some gear in it. And I was asking him what it was. And he said, oh, it's it's a CNC mill. But that's, you know, basically that's just for people that are super smart. <laughs> and I kind of thought, oh. <laughs> and then, you know, years later, I just got so into that topic matter. I really feel similarly like I was searching all of my life for CNC. And then, <laughs> and then one day I became aware of the tool. And it's like my body and brain had been just waiting for it and didn't know what it was, you know. Yeah, and I, I do remember taking, I took a digital fabrication class, and that was like kind of like the beginning of my interest of, yeah, like, you know, programming and, and making things digitally, but I want them to have a physical form. That's cool. One of the things I, I've always thought was interesting about the plotter, I think about this when I see your work, this thing our brain does when line spacing changes over time, I'm not sure, over distance, I don't know. The density changes across the distance. Exactly. And that we can't help but create and also destroy this idea of like 3D shapeness. But then like a few little things can happen and that 3Dification of an image can really flatten out and do something different. And I was just curious about how you think about that or what intrigues are sort of is always pulling you towards that technique. Yeah, I mean, the cool thing about programmatic art is that it can become so complex and layered with like, for instance, some of my designs are rotational art where I'm rotating one shape over and over again. And it's based on waveform modulation. So the waveform determines where the shape is being placed. And it can end up creating a 3D shape or the feeling that it's three dimensional because it becomes so complex from just one shape to like a thousand shapes on the page. Um, and that's one of the things that's really cool about programmatic art. Also, there is like a level of precision that you can achieve with a plotter and with generative art that would be really hard for me personally to draw. And that's another thing that I just love is how you can create these really precise, smooth, beautiful, drawn forms that would be really hard for me as a human to draw. <laughs> it would be like a lifetime to like draw that so beautifully. Yeah, that's cool. I'm looking right now at your high contrast prints you have, like the sea anemone print and the jellyfish jam print. They have just a lot of depth to them because of the density of the line kind of undulating over time really gives it this really great kind of 3D shape. That white on the black paper is also so beautiful. One of the things, Michelle, that I've, I've been curious about is you really have a command of color that I, I don't see often in generative work. It must be hard also to, to, to manipulate that many colors at once, but I was really curious to hear about that process and that your experiences doing that. Well, the nice thing actually about working with a plotter and pens is that you're actually very limited in what color options you have. And so it's a little easier, I think, to actually arrive at a beautiful combination since the colors have already been pre-chosen for you by the pen companies. But yeah, I do see one of the trends in code art is like very stark black and white. Very few people dabble more with color, which I think is a shame. <laughs> 
I love colorful art, obviously. For instance, when I create these designs that are cyan, magenta, and yellow, where those different layers overlap creates additional colors. And it's like, gives it a different dimension when you see these like color interactions that for instance, I didn't design in a way. I didn't like decide that like it was going to be green there, but it became green. I think that's like magic and very lovely. And so I think it is like too bad that less people explore color. At the same time, it's hard. When I was more interested in the fine art realm in my 20s, I took an entire semester class that was entirely about color and color mixing and color palettes and even then I walked out there not feeling like I quite understood at all. But it it's very a very complex topic. So I totally understand an artist who's just like black and white. <laughs> but I do think you're missing out on a whole realm of beauty if you leave color off the table. But it does help if you take, for instance, a class on color theory. Yeah, that's cool. Joseph Albers, is he the color person? Yeah, so in the color theory class I took, we talked we talked about him, his work. There's like color illusions that can happen, which is really fun. For instance, there was a print I did recently where I think it was blue and orange or some combination of blue with another color, and it made it look brown. But when you looked up close, you're like, no, it's not brown. (laughs) So there's like really fun things you can do with color. Yeah. The other cool thing about the cyan, magenta, and yellow prints is that if you just change the ordering of it, it makes a print that looks entirely different which is also a lot of fun to play with. And it's a little hard with the pen plotter to layer, precisely layer pens on top of each other. But if you can succeed in doing that, then you can mix even more colors by having two pens on top of each other. So I think there's just like a whole world of exploration. But if you're not into that whole process of trying to make a ton of different prints, and I do like try to speed it up for myself by doing some mock-ups in Illustrator first, but it is like a longer process where you're like, okay, let me try this, let me try that. And you can kind of get a sense of what it will look like before you plot it, but you're not entirely sure. So it's more like a drawn-out process. That's the kind of magical realm when working with automated systems, right? Where you sort of set the stage for something to take place, but then you leave a pocket of uncertainty. You just have to design it really well so that the uncertainty doesn't mean that the you know, device catches on fire or whatever. It's, it's hard to achieve. I have some process questions, Michelle, but Taylor, did you have another question you wanted to jump in before I ask about? I was just going full boot on that. You go ahead. Oh, cool, cool. So it would be great to chat with you, Michelle, about your process a little bit. There's a couple of things in my life that feel plotter-like, and that's like having used a laser cutter and other things that kind of have this X and Y axis that then you can kind of work within and make stuff with. And one of the things I guess I'm always kind of dumbfounded by, and and Taylor turned me on to this kind of way back in the day, which is the setup is an awful lot of work, and then you get to see how it turns out, and then you kind of iterate and then see how it turns out, and then iterate and see how it turns out. And I was just curious about your process there, like what tools or processes do you find fun to work with and sort of help you get to that like output as fast as possible uh, so you can see what it's going to look like on the page? Yeah, I think I'm kind of, again, a little more old school. So I'll use Illustrator a lot. And I have like an old Illustrator <laughs> because I'm like, I'm not paying. I already paid lots of money for this. So I'm just going to milk it until it like, won't open anymore. <laughs> How did you pull that off? I thought they kind of forced everybody to update at this point. Well, it's like installed on my computer. My computer's old. And so I don't update the computer either. 
the operating system. And I'm basically like... Take that, Adobe. Yeah, I'm like, well, at some point I'll have to get a new computer and then I'll have to put, you know, some program on there. But <laughs> in the meantime, I'm like holding strong. <laughs> but my, my process is... Well, so I have the program and I'll run it and it can get mesmerizing sitting there and seeing all the different outputs. It can be sometimes hard to like choose the design you like the best. Um, and that's kind of part of the fun is you have so many different options to choose from. And then you can go down like a rabbit hole of what happens if I change this parameter? <laughs> what happens if I do this? But at some point I'll like be like, okay, I really like this design. So I'm always designing in black and white and then I'll bring it in the illustrator and then at that's the point where I'll decide if it's going to be color or not. And I also, if I decide I want to see a color version, I add um, different options to the program to map out the color. I really love mapping it to a sine wave and seeing based on changing the um, speed of the waveform, how it distributes the color across the shape. It can be very different. Because based on how the program is drawing it in the first place, so if it's drawing the shapes outward, it can create more of a gradient. If it's drawing the shapes inward and then moving out, you might end up with pink color in the center and then the yellow is farther out. Oh, my cat's like meowing like men. <laughs> um, so... It's always fun to like change the waveform speed of the sine wave mapping and see what the color distribution, how it changes. Based on that, I use Illustrator again, though, to pull out the separate layers and prepare them for my pen plotter. I guess my cat's agreeing with my process. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Just uh, bring her in and put her right on the mic. Yeah. <laughs> and... Once all the files are ready, then I bring it to the plotter. So I use Inkscape. I think this all goes back to me being kind of still more an artist than a coder. Because a lot of like coders, coder, coder people, they'll like use Python to send everything to the plotter or a Raspberry Pi to put, like code it. And I'm still like very much like a fine artist. So for me, it's all about like, how can I just like make it really easy and use like software like Illustrator and a software like Inkscape where everything's like done for me and it's plug and play. And then I just focus on the art part where it's like color and shape and form and getting that drawn. And so I've had like oftentimes I'll have people come to me and say, why don't you use Raspberry Pi or why don't you put a camera on the arm and program a bunch of cool stuff and I'm like that's cool I think I'll just keep doing my <laughs> artist thing over here I don't have time to program that <laughs> I'll just keep hand-holding doing my videos and using Inkscape and Illustrator and like kind of using built-in tools to speed up what for me is like what I want to do which is the art process and how can I get to that art process faster using like different tools to speed that up for myself instead of like programming those tools so I'd say that's my process that level of confidence just to know what you want and just to do that, I'm very jealous of that. I know, yeah, it's good. Yeah, I mean, the other pro like part of the end is like once it's ready to go to the plotter, it's like testing pens and on a piece of paper and saying, I think these two will look good together and then just running it. And I do do like mock-ups in Illustrator where I use a filter called multiply so that I can see where the color overlaps of the pens might translate to additional colors so I can kind of get a sense of what it'll look like before I plot it. But I mean, it never is going to be truly what it looks like. That was totally one of my questions for you, which is... It seems like one of the things that's really neat about a plotter, I should take one second to describe, try to describe a plotter. A plotter is essentially, a, imagine a, a pen or pencil and the tip of it is on the paper and then the pen or pencil is 
moved around on the X and Y axis back and forth and up and down using a couple of motors. <laughs> I guess I'll put it that way. And that allows for very precise positioning of the pin and the pin can be raised up and down. I think if that's, if that's right. Yeah. There's like a servo motor that lifts okay, up and down. Yeah. yeah. Two and a half axis. Got it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Ooh, Taylor. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> but one of the things that I think is really beautiful and interesting about the plotter is it's an a very analog tool, the pen or pencil and the ink coming out the end, but then the hand, quote unquote, um, holding the pen or pencil is a machine, right? And so it can be very precise. But what is cool is different than a like a laser print or a color printout, you're getting this actual blending or overlapping of lines that then change the density or opacity maybe of the line itself. It doesn't seem like Illustrator would be able to show you that. It's something that you would have to try right? To know like, oh, these colors blended. Or am I mistaken? Is there a way that you, a strategy you have to be able to see that before it it gets plotted? Well, the closest you can do is this like multiply. I don't know if it's like a filter that you apply to each layer so you can kind of get a sense of how they might mix. But that assumes that you already know the exact color of the pen and you're putting it in perfectly into the program. And so I'm usually just guessing, oh, I think it looks like this magenta. And then you have to also make sure you're in a CMYK color space because sometimes I've accidentally been in the RGB color space and then it looks completely different than what it's actually going to look. So it's only as good as you know what you're doing, <laughs> but it's always just like a representation and in the end you'll have to just plot it to really see if it works. Michelle, you had alluded to having a partner that works in sound and then you also mentioned using waves, whether they were explicitly audio waves or not, to influence your work. And I'm just curious, do you think the two of you have an influence on one another's work or was that just a coincidence? I mean, I think it's more a coincidence, but I do... I have an interest in audio and, and how it might be cool one day to somehow use an audio waveform to create a pattern instead of using, you know, sine and cosine and like mathematical waveforms. But it is like cool to understand how waveforms work because there there is that huge overlap in sound that if you understand how waveforms work, you also basically understand how sound works. Um, so it's easier for me to like... <laughs> listen to and talk to him about uh, like sound and audio because I ha do have some understanding about waveforms. Mm -hmm. For sure. Yeah. And they like know like what's a square waveform and a sawtooth. And I think a lot of people who don't work in sound and don't do this kind of like generative art wouldn't know what, what those waveforms are. I mean, of course, the first thing that gets me thinking about is integrating, you know, MIDI or some other kind of performative musical aspect, but then we would get straight into the Python and Raspberry Pi territory, which you are specifically trying to avoid. Yeah, which is probably why I've never done it. <laughs> so yeah, I don't want to be that guy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, this is probably where I need to find a collaborator who's into that part. <laughs> I mean, actually, there's so in our little links section, Rob, I don't know if you want to transition, but I was working with something this week that might appeal to you in that regard. Should I talk about it? Oh, nice. Yeah, that sounds great. Are you all familiar with the Raspberry Pi Pico, this thing that just came out? Mm -mm. 
So for those who don't know, although I think most of our audience is down with Raspberry Pi generally, but, you know, Raspberry Pi is this little Linux computer, kind of the size of a credit card or deck of cards, something like that, and it's pretty cheap. And I think for a while, you know, you can get maybe slightly older Raspberry Pis for the same amount that you could buy an Arduino, which could do considerably less. So the Raspberry Pi Foundation came out with a device called the Pico that is supposed to, it's it's effectively an Arduino replacement or alternative, but it only costs $4.00. And right now, if you go to Micro Center, they're selling them for $2 each. (laughs) So it's just a crazy time to be alive when microcontrollers are that cheap. And then you can use it to, I think you can run C++ or Python on that. And when you plug it into your computer, it just looks like a little teeny tiny hard drive. So you program in Python and just drag the Python file over the hard drive and drop it. And then it starts performing. I don't know if embedded computing is something that interests you, Michelle, but uh, right now it's never been cheaper. And it's, it's pretty exciting to to follow along. So that's that's one of the things I've been really into this week. Yeah, it's definitely on my to-do list, which is very long. But Raspberry Pi is on there and to to get one and to think about how to use it with my AxiDraw. But it's I think like I get kind of um, ADD and I'm just like, I want to make art and I don't want to like stop what I'm doing and buy a Raspberry Pi and think about this other area. <laughs> so it's like kind of hard to tear myself away. Reb, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think for you and I, that's kind of the point, right? Is to get distracted and to buy the new doohickey? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Always. So yeah, Michelle, don't let us convince you to go to the dark side. It, it it sounds like you have a lot of focus and it's working for you. So yeah, keep going. I know. I'm so jealous. It's really great. Well, yeah, but it's like kind of negative in its own way because I think it's like hyper focus. So it's like I definitely can do get like distracted, but then I also will get too like I this is all I'm doing, and then I like everything else is gone. <laughs> and then hours later, I'm like, oh man, I should like, eat something, <laughs> take care <laughs> of myself. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, so it's like it has its pluses and negatives. I have to ask. So your blog, by the way, is an amazing resource. And so thanks for doing that. I know it's a lot of work, and it's just so cool to flip through the different posts you create about all the different things. The one I, I really like that people should check out and we'll link to it in show notes is about Philotaxis. Is that the right way to pronounce that? Yeah, the Philotaxis spiral, which is like what you find in Romanesco broccoli has that beautiful spiral and like sunflower seeds that in the head have that awesome pattern. So some of my designs, I modulate a Philotaxis spiral. So I take that initial spiral and then I feed waveforms into it to create like a form that has that origin of that spiral, but is altered by the waveforms to like create some of the rotational art. What ends up happening is the art has a sunflower look to it, but it's not a sunflower. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just want to say thanks for those posts are really great. One thing I was just flipping through all the posts and I was curious about if you want to share it, but if it's the secret sauce, then feel free not to. You must at this point really have a keen sense of the pen and the paper that works well for you. And so if people, after they hear about your work, decide to go down the the path of plotting or doing generative art, do you have any pen or paper recommendations for people? Yeah, so I use paper by French Paper Co. It's made in the US. I think they're in Michigan. And a lot of like screen printers use them. And it's great because you can buy like 100 sheets. You can also buy less, like 25 at a time. I have found that paper works great with a pretty big range of markers and pens. And then as far as pens go, I've been using a lot of disposable pens. And my goal this year is to move away from that and to start doing ink and fountain pens, hopefully. But as far as the 
disposable pens go. I started out using a lot of jelly rolls. They're like beautiful, but a little hard to work with. The ink flow is pretty inconsistent. So I have some tips on my website about working with them. And then I also like Faber-Castell makes really nice pens that are fine lines. A lot of my work requires very fine tipped pens. So they have some like really beautiful colors. And I also like uh, experimenting with pens that will achieve that cyan magenta yellow effect. So um, Stabilo fine liners are beautiful, but one thing I'm learning with this whole process of plotting my work is that some inks will fade faster than others and some inks companies market them as being more fade resistant and light fast. And so unfortunately the Stabilos will fade faster than other pens, so I've been moving away from them, but they do have that really beautiful vibrant color because they're like dye-based inks. So this is one thing if you're like pen shopping and you're concerned about your art holding up against sunlight, you have to start thinking like what's it made from and do they guarantee this as being light fast? So that's one thing I'm becoming like more aware about. And so the Faber-Castell art pens are, I think, light fast. And then they also just, if you go to their YouTube channel, they have really great videos showing their (laughs) pen manufacturing. Also, it is disposable pens, though. So in trying to move away from disposable pen land, I'll be writing more about exploring using inks instead. So I'm going to be experimenting with a couple inks that are from a company based in Germany, I think. I just got them, and I'm excited to try them out. Nice. So at one of my first jobs making picture frames, which was kind of horrible, but the right job for the right time, I remember the older folks were telling each other not to teach me things because you don't want the young people coming up and stealing your spot, you know? And so I just always appreciate so much when an artist is just like, yep, here's my paper supplier. This is what my research on pens and so forth. And it just reinforces that sort of standing on the shoulders of giants, you know, like we all participate in this kind of communal uh, research practice, which I think is great. So thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah, I don't try to hide it. Sometimes I forget to like put on my Instagram what I use, but if someone asks, I am quite happy to share. As Obama said, we didn't build that. <laughs> oh, what what is that? Oh, you don't know that quote, Rob? No. Uh-uh. Yeah, I don't think I've heard that. Oh, it's just that classic thing about how, you know, corporations didn't build the roads that their trucks travel on and that kind of thing. So, ah, like like clearly Michelle and you and I have interesting things to contribute to the, you know, global creative space but i i think that idea that you protect things because i don't know i guess when i try to describe it it takes some of the magic out of it so i, I returned to my earlier statement which is thanks for sharing all that <laughs> <laughs> taylor I, I had a random idea let's hear it earlier today that sure. i'm gonna deploy and that is michelle do you have any questions for taylor and I? whoa interesting <laughs> pop quiz if you don't that's totally fine we don't typically make space for that and i thought i'd try it out and see how it goes well i guess with the pandemic and everything for you as creative people how has it kind of changed your process and what you do creatively like for me social media has become a lot more important and like virtually connecting with artist communities is a lot more important now than it ever was i usually went you know to in-person events so i think that's one way that's like kind of changed for me But I'm curious for other creative people, how's like the pandemic and the way things are going impacting them? I've had like ups and downs too with like productivity because when things get stressful (laughs) and horrible, I just can't be creative. (laughs) Taylor, I'll let you go first. (laughs) Okay, sure. That's my job. You know, I'm always ready to talk. That's my one talent. I'm married and I have a kid. And then we've been sort of sharing uh, responsibility for class, which is all online with my mother-in-law. At times of the month, 
it's a much denser thing because our my mother-in-law is staying with us, but then at other times, all of my family travels to my mother-in-law's house and I'm totally by myself. And so it's this real weird sort of hot and cold everybody's all up in everyone's business and then nobody's around. For me, it's been really important to disconnect from social media, which I find just totally bumps me out. <laughs> and so I've had a collaboration going. And again, Michelle, I know this isn't, I'm, I'm not trying to convince you to do this, but it's, it is very Raspberry Pi and Python based. I'm <laughs> working with two artists who are in different parts of the country, working toward this shared goal and uploading all of our progress to GitHub. Then we have mirrored versions of the technology in West Virginia and Chicago. So when I'm working with Kay Dart and Stephen Lee, you know, when I'm talking to Stephen, we're trying to share 3D models and make renders and animations and so forth. When I talk to Kay, we're trying to like make 3D prints for strapping a track phone to a, a hard hat so that you can do like point of view video and we're trying to you know figure out how to get a raspberry pi to talk to solenoid valves on a propane tank and everything and, and to do that you have to have sort of mirrored physical technology but then everything else happens through zoom and twitch and so on so yeah so in some ways i'm really disconnecting from social media so i don't doom scroll and in other very targeted ways i'm going all in and i'm you know like we have a github and a slack and a zoom and a, they kind of everything at once so that's what i've been doing Wow. Yeah. It's good to hear both of y'all thinking through that. My creative output has really sucked <laughs> since the <laughs> pandemic. No, no. It's really just, you know, what's funny is, Michelle, is I've never actually thought about it until you mentioned it. And it's a number of kind of light bulbs have come on for me. I think one of them is I've been really enthusiastic over the past few years about making work outside and making work kind of in weird random places and just outdoors and stuff. And that's work I could still totally do right now but it for some reason like that part of my brain is just shut down right now it's just like not happening i'm not inspired to go typically i'm inspired by a place it's like oh look at that weird empty lot or look at that weird thing and i wasn't biking nearly as much and i think that's one reason why is i often get inspired by biking and so i haven't been doing that as much as as i used to i used to commute back and forth to work on a bike the other aspect of it though is connected to social media and then i think i never really let my creativity pivot towards a social media platform like Instagram or Twitter or something. And I think I'm missing out by not just diving in and like posting work in progress stuff and just posting stuff. Like I still had this kind of very precious sense of like, I made a thing and then like maybe some end photos, you know, photos after the fact will show up online or something. But I, I really haven't kind of turned that corner that a lot of people are have turned and are able to share their process. I think about Wolfcat Workshop. Sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Federico Tabone is a old guest of ours. Wolfcatworkshop.com is his website. And he's so good about just sharing work in progress and his ideas and stuff. And I'm, I'm always super inspired by it. And I don't know why I'm not doing it. So he's the one that convinced me that the GIF was an art form. Yeah. Wow. Michelle, do you know Federico's work at all? Have you heard of his work? No, I don't think so. Oh, cool. Cool. I think you'd really dig it. He has an an illustration art practice. He also makes a lot of kind of tiny hand crank machines. Also highly patterned. Very patterned. Yeah, exactly. Great, great point. His work is beautiful. And he did this great thing called One Month of Small Machines where he just put out this really great sequence day after day of little tiny automata, maybe is the best way to put it. Anyway. Rob, do you want an art assignment? <laughs> do I want an art assignment? Yes, sure, sure. So I just assigned this to my students today. So pick a memory, like a place that was really important to you in the past. Okay. Could be an apartment or a skate park or whatever it happens to be. And then think of an album that you associate with that place. 
and then sit down and listen to the entire album and then draw the place for memory. Okay. That's your art assignment. Cool. I was really on board until you said the word draw, and then I, I broke out in a cold sweat. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, you don't want to draw? Why don't you want to draw? I'm going to interpret draw through however I choose to interpret draw. You can write or you can collage. That's right. Yeah. I can draw with something that... Yeah, right. Exactly. Uh, Michelle, he seems open to it. You want to tag onto this homework at all? Um. Well, like Rob, I don't actually want to draw anything. <laughs> I'll like, program a computer to draw something for me. <laughs> so do you feel like there's a benefit there, Michelle, in the distance that the tool offers where you're sort of collaborating with the tool instead of fully authoring yourself? Or do you interpret it differently? It is like a collaboration in that I do start with like an idea where I was, I'm like, oh, I want to do this and I'm going to program it in. But then you can then collaborate kind of like mathematically where you can apply things that you think could be interesting. And then you're kind of more exploring. So you're seeing what happens. And you need, I kind of think like, I think this might look cool, but I actually don't know what it'll look like yet until I put it in the program and let it run and show me what it would look like. So I think that's in the way it becomes a collaboration with a computer. But it all does still start with the idea. And so I think that's where each person can make it their own thing and their own collaboration because everyone's going to approach it differently and write the program differently. And so I think that's where it still is art. Recently on Instagram, this like big art account posted a video of one of my pen plotting and there was like these kind of trolley comments about how it wasn't art. (laughs) And I was thinking, no, that's not right. I'm going to stop looking at these comments now. But I do understand that people could get like frustrated or think it's not art if the computer made it for you or if the plotter drew it for you. But I still think it is art because it still starts with me deciding what's being drawn and made and still writing that program and putting the pens in the plotter and running it. So to me, it's still art. Yeah, I mean, do those people wear corrective lenses? You know, do they um, do they use pencils that they bought at the store? Yeah, I mean, where do you draw the line? Should we all just be like, okay, it's like art only, like something someone draws in, in, in the dirt or something? <laughs> yeah, you can only when you blow mineral water over your hand yeah. with your mouth. Is that art? <laughs> <laughs> I like got that it was like trying to troll my work. Oh, of and course. Like, okay. <laughs> were there any trolls that were so over the top that you actually found them fun afterwards? Or were they all just a bummer? Well, it was like a bummer and I didn't want it to like get too like sure. anxious about it. So I just stopped looking. But I thought it was really interesting because I've never had a fine art focused account share my work before. Usually the accounts that share my work are really into generative art and code art. And so it's like programmers looking at it and they would never question it as being art or not. So it was interesting to see that kind of fine art pushback happen and be like, oh, right. <laughs> a lot of fine artists don't like people code art. <laughs> some some don't. So. I do some uh, videos for LinkedIn Learning, and I, I did this thing on a kind of industrial CAD program, Mastercam, and, and somebody wrote in the comments, uh, this course sucks so bad, but I guess that's what you get for letting an artist teach an engineering course. <laughs> and it was, uh, I was just glad that he went over the top enough, I'm assuming it's he, that I could just laugh at it afterwards. But yeah, that stuff... Um, it's hard not to let that stuff get to you, isn't it? Yeah, because I'm sure plenty of engineers would obviously be like, what is she doing with code? <laughs> or why is she doing that? 
I know, right? That's why you can't think about it. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> Rob, we've uh, we've kept Michelle pretty late. Should we start uh, wrapping it up? What do you think? Yeah, let's do it. Listener, we'd like to send you an opposable thumb sticker. If you share a podcast episode on social media, rate us on iTunes, send smoke signals, or some other cool thing to let people know about the podcast, we will mail you a sticker. Just contact us on Instagram at opposable underscore podcast or at our email, opposablepodcast at gmail.com. We'd like to give a shout out to Wesley Ellis, Charlene McBride, Adam Mayer, Deb Chatra, Blondie Hacks, Nick Kantar, Walter Kutundu, and David Bellhorn. They're our top Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them in our League of Patreon Supporter Badasses, please go to patreon.com slash opposable thumbs to sponsor us. Anything you can donate really helps keep the podcast going. Our podcast is dedicated to providing a harassment-free experience for everyone, regardless of race, gender, age, sexual orientation, disability, physical appearance, body size, knowledge of subject matter, or religion, or lack thereof. We actively support an inclusive environment, and we want you to be a part of it. You can check out our full code of conduct over at our site. Michelle, do you have any digital properties such as Instagram or website, etc.? I know you also sell some of your work on your website as well. So I was curious if you could share any digital places you'd like people to check out. I am on Instagram and my username is Dirt Alley Design and also I'm on Twitter under the same username, although I don't use Twitter as much because I'm more prone to doom scrolling on Twitter. So I'm not on there as much. <laughs> and then my website and my store and like where my blog posts are about plotting and generative art all live at dirtalleydesign.com and then some older stuff is on my personal website which is my name so michellechandra.com awesome taylor what if you got any links to share anything cooking i've got a piece in a show right now at the greater denton arts council in texas so that's d-e-n-t-o-n-a-r-t-s.com and the name of the show is materials hard and soft so as an experiment you know i took a piece that i had applied i think in the past at currents which is this explicit new media arts show and didn't get in and so in this case i tried applying to a really explicit you know capital c craft show and they did like the work in that case so i've been experimenting with kind of opening up the context in which the work would be shown to see where it fits because i think oftentimes people don't know what to do with it so yeah that's something to check out you can check out my stuff at robray.net that's probably the most exhaustive place to see what i'm doing instagram does have the occasional process picture but mostly it's posts of my dog what else do i have anything going on i don't have anything going on right now it's called the dog tax, I think is the technical term. Oh, what's the dog tax? In the world of social media, which you're trying to enter, the presence of a dog is a sure way to get attention. It definitely does get the most number of likes. Sonic Boom, he's a cutie. Well, Michelle, thanks for coming on the podcast. It was really great to hear from you about your work. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun. I mean, especially because with the pandemic, the main person I talked to is my partner. <laughs> most of the most of 2020 and so it's nice to talk to someone else <laughs> other voices yeah, yeah other voices before i fall out of practice having conversations with people that aren't on the internet <laughs> totally oh man if you want to chat about artist versus designer or the benefits of the machine as a collaborator i mean we'll just we'll talk all night that's right that's, we're here for you <laughs> we could have like a twitch stream like that just goes on forever yeah why not <laughs> yeah i still haven't like tried twitch but i've seen some people talking about it i don't know if i could ever like live stream what i'm doing <laughs> i think it's like too invasive yeah though your process it seems like there could be something interesting there oh yeah yeah i do get a lot of people being like what's your process what's your process and it would be interesting to show them like back and forth back and forth finicking fine-tuning and then cursing here and there when it doesn't work out so yeah no one sees that end of it <laughs> 
Well, Michelle, thanks again. That was really cool. Your work is so awesome. Thanks for just totally being like, yeah, two strangers. Fine, I'll talk to them. (laughs) (laughs) We are strange. It's true. (laughs) 